Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special Christmas episode of the Adventure Games Podcast. Hello and Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays, Francisco. How are you? Oh, likewise. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to you as well. I'm well. How are you? I am very well, thanks. It's been such a long time since we've spoken. It (laughs) has been. Maybe not long enough, you might say, (laughs) from your end. I mean, I'm always happy to speak with you, but uh, um, but, uh, you you and Jess Haskins were in Ireland where we met in, you know, Adventure X, and you guys were in Ireland. And I still have to meet you guys in New York. I still have to try and meet up there. Hopefully, this well next year, uh, we can we can do that. But um, but yeah, no. But thank you so much for joining me for probably what's what's, the fifth time now. (laughs) Is it? No, it's uh, (laughs) no. This is the you were the very first guest uh, on our show. So I thought, what better way to finish the year than having the first guest? Be the last guest again, you know. We well, go around. I'm honored. Was it so, only this year? Uh, yes, I know. It's been, it, it feels like a long time ago. It but, does. It does. That, that we met at Adventure X last year. Right. And you very, very kindly agreed to be my first guest on the podcast. You took a punt. You took a shot. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it was after I spoke with, uh, with with you that I thought, oh, I really have to learn how to do a podcast <laughs> well i mean you seem to be doing pretty well you could you've had a good year i'd say that's great. yeah that, congratulations I mean, I'm, to you thank you no it's uh you have been very helpful by at least well agreeing to appear on the podcast and you've helped with the podcast as well but yeah it's uh, uh i've been pleasantly surprised and um and yeah and shout out to thomas and laura as well who've been helping yes the reviews as well so um, yes, I so, had a very good time hanging out with the three of you at Adventure X, and of course, our uh, you, our monkey, monkey island innuendo. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that's easily one of the highlights of my Adventure X. It's it's a shame that we didn't record that conversation, but no, it's uh, your whoop indeed. And <laughs> yes, a big whoop. And although uh, I think I, I it would be the one time I'd have to put the explicit rating. On yeah, <laughs> I think we, that's kept. Amongst friends. Yeah. We'll <laughs> try not to ru- ruin Monkey Island or ruin the innocence of Monkey Island for everyone else. <laughs> I'm getting a little over here with uh, with emotion. No, just cough. Anyway. <laughs> oh, hope, hope, hope I'm not making you sick now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's the thought of it's the Monkey Island innuendo that's making me sick. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. You know, there's certainly curses there and uh, curse of Big Whoop, I believe. <laughs> uh, anyway, so now you you were on this podcast, the very first episode of this podcast, where we talked about your games in detail. So, um, you know, this time I think we will see how you are doing now. And also we'll be talking about the adventure genre in uh, in general. Mm-hmm. And you can give us your thoughts and your opinions and your processes of making the games and your thoughts of the adventure genre and where it's heading as well, where you see it 
Uh, where do you see the future of the adventure genre as well from your point of view as an adventure game developer and how it's changing and all of that? So, um, so first of all, now you've already introduced yourself. So if people want to know in detail about all your games, they can listen to episode one. Yes. First, and but, it's very easy to find. Yes. <laughs> episode one. It's the very first episode. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to dig through too much to, I mean, you do have to dig through to, to a lot of episodes to get there, but you just have to go to the very first page, and it will be right there. Exactly. <laughs> it will be on It's on the websites on all the podcast platforms, I hope. Mm. And um, so now, so this is uh, you know, kind of to round things out for the, for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, first of all, we spoke about Lamplight City the last time that you were on. I have since played Lamplight City, and I reviewed it on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. It yes, thank you. You gave, you gave me a very kind review. I appreciate it. Yes, no, it was genuine. It was, you know, one of my games of the year, and uh, same with Thomas as well. He, he, uh, we kind of agreed on our games of the year last year. I'm not so sure, not sure about this year. Let's <laughs> wait and see. But um, no, it was it was really really good, and um, and since then you have also added an update to Lamplight City. Uh, or at least by the time this episode goes out. Yes. Um, yeah, commentary mode. Um, so, yeah, I did that mostly because, uh, and by which I mean, when I say I did that, I mean I released it as an update after the fact. Um, mostly because I, I, in previous games I've done, I've released a commentary track simultaneously with the game. Um, but you know, kind of foreshadowing our talk about the future of adventure games and the current state of things. Um, with places like Steam, they give you, uh, when you launch a game, they, they kind of give you uh, a little bit of a push as far as like publicity and the algorithm and all that stuff. But once that goes away, it becomes, you have to hustle to get your game out there. But Steam has this thing called uh, visibility rounds where they allow you to push an update to your game and if it's a major update, uh, which they define as, you know, brand new content or anything like that, then they allow you to do up to six visibility rounds. I think it's six or five or something. Anyway, um, and what those visibility rounds do is they they tend to uh, alert the people who have either wishlisted the game or already have the game in their library about the update and like, you know, kind of get it in their minds again. So I did that because I, I wanted to get a visibility around and I figured adding a commentary after the fact would be a good excuse. Cause really how much can you update an adventure game with? There's not too much DLC for adventure games. <laughs> um, so that was my main reasoning behind doing that. And also I thought it would be interesting to do a commentary, you know, a year after the game's release to kind of, as far as like writing and recording it, because that way it's, it's not quite so fresh in my mind and I can sort of think back and offer maybe, uh, you know, more, not necessarily honest, but just a, a different opinion than if I, you know, still was on that release high and was like, yeah, this is great. Uh, you know, maybe now I can think, look at things a little bit more critically or a little bit more objectively or whatever. So, Right, yeah. yeah because at that moment, uh, you know, as you say, you're on the release high. And it, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, I really liked the game that, I, uh, you know, I thought that, it was very good, but you know, it's really high. It's like, yeah, no, this is great. You know, everything, 
is going really well, and then maybe a year after, I don't know if you if you're thinking, oh, you know, maybe I could have not to do things wrong, but maybe oh, I could maybe done this differently, or sure. maybe change things around here. And by I, then you also have, you know, you've seen player reaction, so you can mm. say, oh, I noticed that a, I th- I thought this going in, but I noticed that a lot of players said or did this with this particular thing, and that's really interesting. And now I'll think about that another way or something like that. There's there's a few instances of that on the commentary. Okay. Do you want to give one example that doesn't give any spoilers, or? Uh. Or did that, that yeah. be spoiler? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's slightly spoiler if you haven't played the game. But there's um there's a bit in the last case uh when you get to the crime scene. There's a there's a there was a, a line of dialogue that I cut from the conversation with a the character there, and the reason I cut it was because I wasn't really happy with the with the performance of the the delivery of the line and i mean i wasn't going to call up the actor to say hey can you redo this one line so i figured yeah, i'll just cut it whatever it's not going to be a big deal and because that line wasn't in there a lot of people were thought oh well this obviously is means something else and this is they they kind of formed this whole alternate theory about a particular plot point of the game when that wasn't a thing. It was just because I cut a line of dialogue. <laughs> ah, right. So you just cut it and then people had like a different idea of what it meant. People thought that there was a copycat killer that was a, a plot twist as opposed to the killer you're actually looking for because oh. there was a particular detail that was not mentioned that was like an important signature that the killer leaves behind. I think you can uh, you can get where I'm going with this. Now. <laughs> right, I yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember that last case actually, but yeah, because I didn't. Yeah. See, I don't remember noticing anything like that. But any, my memory is terrible anyway. So yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to to replay it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, because what what I remember from Lamplight City is, and I think we spoke about this is the piano puzzle, but. Right. That, and I don't know if other players mentioned that when, at least when I saw the piano, I immediately thought, oh, there's going to be some puzzle with this. I'm going to do yeah. something with this. Sure, and I think yeah. I, I forgot to talk to the parrot or something because <laughs> I, also, I think that was the only time I was quote unquote stuck in the game. Right. I but, think that was one of the times that most people, because that was really the only puzzle quote unquote <laughs> in the game. But yeah. And, uh, and then with the, with, uh, the comments and the feedback to the game, uh, because there were some things as well, there was an election in the game as well. And uh, yeah. did, that, did players have any comments or feedback on that in the game? Because it's not a huge part of the game itself, but it's there in the background. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, talk about the election and, and why I included it and stuff in the commentary. Uh, but that wasn't really one of the things that players specifically gave uh, feedback about. It was just one of those things that was like, well, it's it's in there, it's uh, part of the world, it's definitely part of the world building, but it's also kind of thematically appropriate that it feels like, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a thing we're all thinking about nowadays. Sure, yeah, I mean, there seems to be an election on every week now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or something about an election, so it seems topical at least. Yeah, exactly. And, but it it was it was done very very well because it felt real that you know the way people spoke in the game about the election about the candidates you know because like we do that now sure. um, you know it feels and then whatever 
uh, person you voted for. Although I thought that in the game, it seemed to be more difficult to know who to vote for than in real life. <laughs> right. Yeah, because, I mean, you're not, you haven't been in the game world. You kind of get little glimpses of them. But sure, yeah. You don't get bombarded with, like, the, the political ads and stuff that you would in real life to, like, make an actual decision. But I think that's also part of it, because, you know, period-wise, it's far more likely that people are just going to vote for whoever the spur of the moment because uh, they don't have they didn't have the technology back then to you know be bombarded with political ads every minute of their lives so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no facebook no twitter no yeah well, that would be kind of fun time. yeah <laughs> Oh, that'd be kind of fun, like Twitter in Lamplight City. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, no, I think Twitter in real life is enough. <laughs> yes, yes, it's more than enough. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, one year after release, because one of the big things about the game Lamplight City is that it's okay to fail, that yes. it's okay to, you know, not to get, uh, you know, the, the case correct, and then you can still move on with the game or to the next case. Um, did you get much feedback on that from from players and in the commentary? Do you speak about it? Um, I think I talk about it a little bit the concept in the commentary, and yeah, I definitely got feedback from players. I mean, most of the players understood the concept. Most of the players were okay with it. There were a few players who didn't quite grasp the fact that you couldn't get stuck in a dead end, and they thought that as soon as you closed something off, then that was it. Um, which was not my intent, obviously it was... I mean, I, I realized that a, to a lot of people, not being able to get the right solution or not having the option to get the right solution was pretty much equivalent to being stuck and having and being forced to reload. Just not because that was the only option presented in the game, but because they personally thought, well, this is unacceptable, I can't get anything better than... or I can't have anything less than the best possible solution. Which I understand. I mean, it's it's a tricky design challenge to make a game where it's possible to get things wrong and balance that with the innate desire of a player to play a game to win. Um, so that was that was an interesting lesson. And going forward, I definitely think that uh, the trick there is rather than locking people out of content and letting them know that they've been locked out of content. I think uh, a more practical approach would be to design it so that if you play poorly or if you don't do everything great, you still get the bare minimum and you still get a satisfying conclusion. But if you play well and you do really well, then you might get some bonus stuff or extra stuff. Like I played around with that in, like you said, the fourth case with the election. There's like a whole extra bonus subplot that you can uncover if you do your investigation. Um, but it's not necessary to the main, to, to solving the case, like the main way to solve the case. So I'm thinking if I design a case where, you know, there's a certain amount of evidence and you only need to get the bare minimum of evidence to be able to convict. But if you do more and you find more evidence, you can get a better outcome then that's probably the better way to handle that right. particular game play uh, choice. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, but this is good you know, that you learn as well as you, because the concept was new. 
it wasn't uh, entirely. <laughs> I, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I just did something a little, a little different. Uh, I, tr- I, I mean, I don't know offhand of any games where if you do, like, if you do like that, or if you get to run, because there are dead ends, and especially the like early Sierra games, or believe some early LucasArts games, and um, but I don't know if in a detective game that if you ask the wrong thing, or as you say, that this path is closed, that you can still go, because in the Sherlock Holmes games, for example, you have to get everything right, and in all the other detective games, like Gabriel Knight and all, I, you know, I don't. I think if I remember it, pretty linear like that. Yeah, well, I mean, in Crimes and Punishments, you could accuse the wrong suspects. Um, I don't think there were any right. specific yes. instances of, like, asking a certain question will get somebody angry at you and they'll shut down. I think that maybe was something that I did that not many uh, other games did. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. It was, you know, it was an experiment, and I was pretty pleased with the results. And, you know, I'm always learning, and I mm-hmm. took the results of the experiment, and I will apply them to any future, any future games set in the, uh, in Lamplight City. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so if we have a Lamplight City two, we could, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh yeah. you know, use use those things that you've learned to put them in in that game, because also. Absolutely. In- in Lamplight City 1, we can call it now, there, there was yeah, no inventory. Well, well Lamplight City. Yeah. That there, yeah. Was, uh, there was no inventory. And now you mentioned, yeah. I think, the last interview that we did last year, at the beginning of this year, rather, that you, um, or the people at first, some of the hardcore adventure gamers were a bit like, what? No inventory in a third-person yeah. narrative adventure game? Yeah. But after now the game's been released a year, what has been the reaction overall, would you say? Um, the people who have mentioned it have either said, oh, there's no inventory. That means no interaction. That's terrible, which thankfully have been the minority. Um, (laughs) a, A lot of people have said, oh, at first I thought no inventory. That's weird. But then when I played it, I thought, oh, this is great. Why would you have an inventory here? Which is great because that's what was that was my thinking as well. Um. So I don't think it was, it wasn't any sort of polarizing or uh, anything that really put people off the game necessarily. Um, it definitely was something that I think took some people some getting used to, but I think overall it was embraced and people found that it was not as uh, much of a deal breaker as maybe they thought it might be. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I had no issue whatsoever with it. And I think it made mm-hmm. sense because it's one of these weird things, one of these weird tropes in adventure games where the characters, that they're kleptomaniacs, that they pick up everything that isn't nailed down, it doesn't belong to them. Right. And I thought in a quote-unquote realistic setting like Lamplight City as a police officer, okay, if you're looking for clues and that, I think it might work. But I think it's more realistic what happened in Lamplight City where the character just talks to people and investigates and then he goes to the police station and he speaks to them. I've, I've forgotten the names because I'm terrible with names in real oh, life, and, let yeah. alone in games. Yeah. But where you speak to the to the girl and then the coroner and you try and find out that way and you right. search for clues and that. So I thought that worked you know, pretty well. From my end, I had no problem with there being no inventory. And I don't think it's... Oh, good. 
it okay, may, it, may have made the game a little easier for, for like I think if there had been like if the character had got a ladder and put it into his pocket, right? Then, uh, I'd say because I think in LucasArts games or in comedy games, it's like okay, you know, you know, whatever, it's you know, fair yeah. enough. But then in a more serious detective investigation game like that, it would be like, wait, what? You're putting a ladder now that doesn't belong to you? Are you stealing? And you're a detective, right. so yeah, because, I mean. Would you consider L.A. Noir an adventure game? I haven't played it, but I have seen YouTube videos. From what I've seen, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a little bit more action, maybe, from what I've right. seen. Right. But yeah, I think, I mean, the main part but is... the game, the core gameplay it's is... It's adventure, I think, you know? It's right. uh, interviewing suspects, talking to suspects, and then figuring out if they lie or not, from what I right. see. And then driving and that around. Game, that game has no inventory. I mean, exactly. you pick up... You pick up clues, but then when you interrogate people, you can ask them about the things, the evidence you find. But there's no, like, use this on this puzzles, which, you know, that's basically essentially what I did as well. So you yeah. don't need inventory to make an adventure game is my controversial <laughs> opinion or apparently wow. controversial opinion. Wow, that's. Uh, t- I think you are blazing ahead there. <laughs> You'll have I mean, many, many people, you know, writing to you on Twitter. How dare I, you? <laughs> I always cite the Blade Runner adventure game that people love as yes. one of my inspirations, and that game didn't have inventory. Yes, and that's so, actually uh, more available now. I spoke right on the podcast with Scum VM. It's on Scum VM now, so if you yes. haven't played that. Play it. Uh, and it has subtitles now, which it didn't oh. before in English and French. Oh, even better. So again, if uh, you prefer subtitles, uh, then great as well. Now, don't know how exactly you get it working with with subtitles. I haven't actually used Scum VM like directly, but mm. um, just thought I'd mention it. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so that was Lamplight City, and uh, you know we spoke about that in the last episode as well. But no, I think overall, from what I see as well, the reaction was mostly you know very positive. And you yeah, know, definitely, I, can't I think complain. You know, I yeah. mean, I can complain, but who would? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> ah, yeah, we can all we can always complain, but I yeah, mean, but... It, the only thing I could I could not even I don't even want to say complain, but the only thing I could gripe about, I guess, is that you know, there's always there's always the uh, I wish more people would play the game. I mean, plenty of people have played the game, but sure. look at how many wish lists there are in comparison to how many people have actually purchased the game i'm like oh if only i could convert these specialists into sales but that's that's just how things are nowadays yes no we can talk about that uh you know later on in this episode actually was one of my questions that i had that because there's there's so many adventure games out there that it's Mm -hmm. it's hard to distinguish yourself kind of from the pack well it's not even so many adventure games it's just how many games period as well because, yeah. Sure. Yeah, because I'm sure most people play different genres. I've now, especially since I started the podcast this year, I have played almost exclusively adventure games, and even then, I haven't come close to playing all or even a third of the adventure games or a quarter that have been released. You know, it's it's there have been so many released just this year. Who says adventure games are dead? Exactly. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly alive and thriving anyway. But before mm. we talk about uh, adventure game genres as, as a whole, uh, you're now, as well as uh, working or uh, releasing the developer commentary on Amplified City, you're also still working on Rosewater, which we spoke about in Boston. Yes. In Narrowscope. So that's one of the bonus episodes, which you can, yeah, you can probably throw all through, listen to again. But yeah, we had a nice <laughs> conversation there about that. So 
guess my question is, uh, how, how is it going with the development of that game? Uh, it's going pretty well. Um, I am still on uh, on track and ideally hoping to get it out in uh, April or May of 2021. Uh, since we last spoke, I've made it. I actually at AdventureX made things official and signed the contract with Application Systems Heidelberg to publish it. And so then, that's, then he ended that's up in good. hospital, right? <laughs> yeah, but then he was okay. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm joking about it because he was joking about it the day yeah. after. I'm not cruel. Well, yeah. not that cruel. <laughs> but he, but no, I spoke with him after. He's okay. And he, he was joking himself. So Yeah, okay. and he managed to sign another game even after that too. So that's that's good. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, design-wise, it's uh, almost completely designed on paper. I have to write it still, but I've been doing, I've been building the game slowly and I'm actually painting a scene right now as I'm talking to you. So, uh, but I'm still paying as much attention as I'm giving you my my <laughs> <laughs> multitasking. Um, then. <laughs> I am multitasking. Sometimes it's a multitask, uh, but uh, it's going well. Um, I'm hoping to launch the Steam page in January of next year. So okay, so next month even, then. Even, yeah, next month, even sooner than uh, probably like a, a week or two from when this podcast goes out. Um, I'm currently in the process of getting the uh, teaser trailer put together, which is exciting. Nice. Um, yeah, so that'll be that'll come out at the same time because you know you have to have a you have to have a nice trailer to go with your uh, Steam page launch, or else people wonder uh and uh yeah no it's 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 going well i'm i'm still enthusiastic about the project which is always i always take be a good sign yeah that's, that's always a very good sign because if you, you know, if you go oh you know what what am i doing or i you know i don't like the characters anymore or i don't that's probably yeah. not a good sign but yeah i mean i'm still i i haven't really written the game so i can't I still haven't even quite exactly 100% figured the characters out yet. But generally speaking, I like the concept of the characters, and I w I'm still excited to explore them and see what what they become and who they are. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it's a interesting. very answer. So, no, so you, that's, uh, that's interesting, because so you have kind of the world built. So you build the world and the setting first, and then you develop the characters then after yeah. is that more that's more or less your process pretty much yeah okay so so do you have uh, the story built as well or is it just that you think oh this setting would be cool this world and this location and this scene and then you just uh well develop the characters further and the store and the story further is would that be how you how you do things yeah i mean the story is part of the design process and the design right involves the world building and to an extent the characters i mean it's basically the way that my process works is that yeah like i'll come up with the setting first i'll think okay what's cool about this setting what what in this setting would be interesting to explore and that influences the story a little bit because you think all right well maybe this is a cool theme or idea to to explore and then within that you know because so for when i started for example with rosewater you know, I, I already kind of had the setting because it's set in the same world as Lamplight City. So I was like, OK, well, this is obviously in Western Vespuccia, which is the Old West, but in this alternate steampunkish world. So I already had the foundation there. 
And then I thought, okay, well, what elements from the first game would be interesting to explore? How How is this part of this alternate world different from what we've already seen? What sets it apart? So then I started thinking about that. And then I was like, okay, well, this is cool. And then, you know, just in thinking about the typical stuff you see in a Western, I was like, all right, well, what do I want this story to be? Do I want it to be a treasure hunt? Do I want it to be a revenge story? Do I want it to be, uh, you know, a journey from point A to B? Um, and for a while there, I was like, well, let me be super ambitious and let me make it all three. And like, you can pick which way the story goes based on your choices. And then I was like, <laughs> Let me scope this down a little bit. <laughs> so I was like, right. let me take let me take the most interesting elements of those things and combine it into something. So it's now it's a journey from point A to B treasure hunt story, uh, with elements of revenge, if if you so choose. Um, so yeah, so when, once I came up with the basic idea of what the story was going to be. Then I then I started thinking about the characters, and you know, in, in this case, since it's not just the main character, it's also the the travel companions. Uh, you know, I outlined them, and I came up. Excuse me, <laughs> let me do that again without the burp. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Hold for editing. Uh, <laughs> so I outlined the the companion characters, and I didn't. You know, I I wrote. I didn't write like detailed biographies or anything, but I basically wrote, you know, their personality traits, what what was interesting about them, how they would interact with each other. I made a little diagram kind of mapping what their core personality traits were and how who they were most aligned with and who they would be not aligned with to kind of understand what the dynamic of the group would be. I did a few little like writing exercises and just I asked on Twitter for situational things. I got a great one from John Ingold that I never actually wrote that was like the plane's going down and there's only one parachute. <laughs> but I did, you know, I did little exercises and scenarios like that to just kind of get a flavor for how they would speak. And I, I did that just as a sort of cursory idea to get a very broad uh, idea of what their personalities were. And then in doing so, I was able to think, okay, well, this is what this character's arc is going to be. Um, and I'm sorry that I'm giving you a rambly, long, detailed answer. No, no, no. This, but, this uh, is great. <laughs> so, so basically, then I was like, okay, well, what is each character's arc going to be? Or what's each character's potential arc going to be? Because I want to allow for some flexibility of interactivity. You know, not everybody is going to play the game super detailed and try and get every single information about or every single piece of information about each character. So, you know, what's what's their each potential arc going to be um and then in in doing that that also helped the puzzles because i thought okay well if i'm going to structure this so that there are bits where you can choose you know certain paths depending on who's in the party which sounds a lot like unavowed but it's not because it's not the, the part you don't i've been saying you don't choose the party the party chooses you um so if you happen to end up with a certain uh configuration at a certain point it's obviously going to be a slightly different narrative path so right. i thought okay well what what puzzles can i make specific to who you have with you how can those puzzles affect and inform their story um you know how how can that work so that's where i came up with that or that that's 
what influenced that too. And then what I mentioned before about not having a great idea, I haven't written the dialogue yet, so I don't, I haven't quite yet had the chance to get, uh, as they say, get into the characters' heads. And I haven't really come up with those fun little nuances and little jokes and stuff that, in my experience, only happen when you're actually like doing the, the bulk of the writing work. Because um, I mean, you can plan stuff out, but I feel like those little, those little character moments generally tend to happen organically as you're writing. And you think, okay, well, this is happening. Well, how would this character react? Oh, let's let me do a, let's add this funny little thing here, that that sort of thing, you know. Right, right, okay. No, that's that's really interesting. That to to get an idea, you know, inside your mind, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> of how because uh I guess so you have kind of like the concept of the characters and then once you finish with you know the world building and all, then you go deep into the dialogue. That's yeah. Uh, Exactly. It's like if just as a just as a an example, you could be like, okay, well, I know that this character is grumpy and doesn't like people necessarily, and is really has this tough exterior and generally responds to everything with like a sarcastic comment or whatever, you know. And it becomes easy to write generally. Oh yeah, okay, they're gonna do their their sarcastic comment. But then what happens if as you're writing, you realize you can have like a nice little sweet character moment where they have an opportunity to drop the facade and you know you get to actually see the real them you know you you i don't know i feel like you can't really plan for that specifically until you're at that detailed point where you're like okay this has happened this has happened this has happened and now we can see this you know right okay and is this how you developed all your games up until now more or less more yes and no um the way I've developed all of my games up until this point is that I've done everything as I go. With this game, I'm writing, I'm going to do all the writing before I actually import it into the game. So in a sense, I'm kind of still doing that, but it's less of a, I guess it feels like if I'm writing it out in a script first, rather than typing it and putting it into the game, it feels like there's a lot more uh, like, I'll be a lot more flexible to the idea of editing things and changing things around if it's on paper rather than if it's already in the game and I have to think, oh, God, but then I have to go and reprogram this and this and this. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And um, now, you know, you've spoken about the settings and the dialogue and the characters, but uh, when you first started making adventure games, you you've, uh, you started off with AGS, you know, making more comedy centric games as you were like starting off. And lately, then you've kind of, I mean, there's still some comedic elements in your games, but the you know the main storylines have been you know more serious. Uh, do you think maybe that has a result as you have you know developed your own uh, you know skills as a developer, or do you see yourself going back to like full out comedy, or do you prefer making serious stories with comedic elements or that's a good question um i don't know i I guess i tend to veer more towards more serious stories with comedic Mm. elements i mean i've i feel like doing full-blown comedy like slapstick like a salmon max or day of the tentacle is it's tough to get right and i don't i mean i have a, a very particular sense of humor I don't know if that would translate to more of a broad audience. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I really enjoyed Jacob Generico's Paradigm. Um, 
And I mean, I don't know that I have it in me to do a game like that just because I'm not hip with the, with the, you know, the current culture. Um, <laughs> I feel, I actually, I feel bad saying that because I feel like a lot of people look at Paradigm and they think, oh, this is just internet memes, the game. And it's really not that at all. Like, it sort of has a basis in the more modern, like, idea of internet humor, but it's not like, oh, this is referencing this specific meme that if you don't get, you won't understand. It's it's very still broad comedy, but of a particular generation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, as far as, like, me making something like that, I, I mean, I if I got a funny idea... I wouldn't be opposed to running with it. I'm not going to say, no, I'm never going to do a comedy. But I, I just, I don't know. I, it feels like, I guess, the games that I make tend to veer more towards, yeah, serious stories with comedic elements. I mean, that being said, I feel like Rosewater sort of, it's not going to be a, I mean, I've made a huge deal out of saying, look, this isn't a comedy Western because there are no <laughs> drama Westerns. But compared to Lamplight City, um, Rosewater is definitely a lot brighter and a lot more like just happy. <laughs> Not that Lamplight City was was sad or anything, but you know, Lamplight City was a bit darker. You know, you were dealing right. you're dealing with you know themes of like mental illness and and you know racism and, and things like that. Um, and I mean, there's still there's still the world, the issues we've set forth in the world in Rosewater are still there, but but the tone of the story is a lot more bright and happy than Lamplight City was. Um, so, yeah. Right, yeah, and even, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, dark, uh, Lamplight City did have some, you know, dark issues with, you know, such as mental illness and al- alcoholism. and then, Yeah, domestic abuse. And taking know. drugs and all of that. But yeah. it was still, parts were very funny, particularly the interactions with, uh, you know, the, two, the main character and then the voice in his head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the... Or, or the scene where you can you can threaten to sneeze on the germaphobic lawyer. That, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yes, 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 sir. Or even, you know, when you punched a racist guy. Like, it's serious well, mode, no. but it's, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of... The way it is, it's funny. It's kind of like celebrate, celebration funny. Right, but, right. Um, but no, like with the interaction between those two characters were, you know, was funny, especially with the interactions with the objects right. um, as well. But yeah, no, I, I get what, what you're saying as well. And then with Rosewater. And then I suppose with Shardlight, even, you know, that was probably your most serious game. <laughs> yeah. I, imagine. I thought, I. it's funny because a lot of, I've, I've read a few uh, comments on Shardlight that were like, oh, this game is so bleak, and oh, it takes itself uh, so seriously, and I didn't think it was that I didn't that think bleak. that, no. I didn't make it, you know, I wasn't actively trying to make, like, you know, The Walking Dead, where you're supposed to feel bad <laughs> no. about everything. It was um, brighter than The Walking Dead. Uh, one thing I liked about Shardlight is uh, the v- villains, or the government people, when they come right. and they ask the characters to help them, and yeah. the characters then say, no, usually if this had been The Walking Dead, they would have been shot or tortured. But right. in Shardlight, they just said, okay, no, you, we're here if you need us, basically. And they, right. and they left them. You know, they didn't, th- I mean, they were not good people, I think it's safe to say, but it wasn't as, I mean, I mean the storyline was serious, but then, you know, it wasn't as violent or as anything as, uh, as The Walking Dead, for example, that I remember. Right. So, yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it still wasn't exactly a world that is really appealing to live in oh, no. all the time. But no, no yeah. I didn't. I didn't get the, the feeling that it was or sense that it was really, really bleak. Maybe I just play really bleak games. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, overall, but, the the message of short like the intended message of short life was supposed to be hopeful. You know, the hope is that you can, if you if you work at it, you can make a better world and a better future for yourself. So. And I take that positive, if, you know. That's yeah. If people if people felt that it was bleak, well, then maybe they're I don't know. I I don't I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to. Sure, yeah. <laughs> maybe we could but, do a spoiler yeah. special sometime. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, but no, not this time probably not. But mm. um, and uh, and then speaking of you know well bleak, um, mm. you know as times go on, probably. To, at this time, for a lot of people, I think it's safe to say that we live in uncertain, challenging times, you know, mm. around the world. And yeah. again, as you make games, as you tell, make narrative games as well, I just want to, I'd just like to know your opinion in general. Do you feel that as storytellers and as adventure game developers, do you feel that you maybe should, or you have a certain responsibility maybe to reflect the times we live in, or do you think that maybe we should not maybe so do should maybe people use games to escape from real life or anything so just wanting to know in general your opinion because i'm sure people have different opinions themselves but i just want to know your opinion oh absolutely yeah yeah no i mean i it's a i think that definitely um games do serve as escapism any entertainment serves as escapism you know whether it be a tv show or a movie or or a book or or a game or what have you um i do think that you know if it's i'm i'm kind of in two minds about this because i definitely believe that whether consciously or subconsciously you know the an, an author or a creator is always going to put some element of themselves in the game in a game or in in whatever they create whether it be a a particular belief or a particular uh um what's the word i'm looking for uh not agenda because that's the word i'm trying to go against i I just think that they're either going to put a value or a belief or or something whether consciously or subconsciously in their game or what in whatever they create because i mean you know, you're, you always put part of you. If you have some, if, if you see the world a certain way, generally you're probably going to, that's probably going to leak out or some way in, into what you create. Um, so I don't, I, I don't want to necessarily say it's a responsibility. I, I mean, I do think that it creators should be aware of what, they're doing or what things could be perceived that i mean i definitely don't subscribe to the opinion of oh keep politics out of my games because politics is in everything i mean exactly i was reading a thing the other day uh or yesterday about the movie total recall and i haven't seen total recall but you know total recall is generally uh regarded as like not goofy but it's like or not even wacky but it's like over the top science fiction right Mm -hmm. um but when you they were saying like yeah the synopsis of it is basically that this guy uh is basically fed this propaganda that all the people on mars 
are terrible people and this and that. And then he goes to Mars and he sees for himself that it's not true. And it's this, you know, this allegory or this metaphor for propaganda and stuff. And it's Mm -hmm. like, even in something like that, you know. So, yeah, I think that I think it's to say, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to put any political message or any sort of uh, reflect any sort of, uh, you know, ideal or anything is is silly because it's going to come through one way or another you know it's if you want to make a game that's like that says that if the theme of the game is because you know in a narrative game i feel like most people you can you can analyze games and you can say okay well this is the theme of the game if the theme of the game like let's take Shardlight as an example the theme of the game is you know whatever it takes you should try and make a positive uh positive experience for yourself or just like you know try and make the world a better place however you can and another theme that i wanted to explore in shard light too was the idea of like whenever you're presented with a choice like the human nature is if you're presented with a choice between being uncomfortable but uh, being better off and being uncomfortable but being safe then most people will choose the option of being safe and being un- or uncomfortable so like you know if you're that that goes into like politics for example you know if you have the election in lamplight city let's say you have one candidate who says well okay we're gonna stick with the same old same old and it may be crappy but it's what you're used to uh but you'll be safe in knowing that it's the same old thing that versus a political uh, you know the candidate that says well i'm going to take us into an uncertain future that we don't know what's going to happen but in all likelihood things will get better people are probably going to vote for the guy who says we're going to keep things crappy but you'll right. know what you're getting right so yeah, I've definitely put messages like that or put ideas like that into my games, but I'm not outrightly trying to convince people of anything. I'm not trying to say, well, look, this is, you know, and, you know, people still enjoy Shardlight as a, as a, you know, on a human level because they relate with the characters. They like the story. There's drama there, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think that it's a thing that people are getting very upset about. And I think that people who get upset about, you know, keep politics out of my games are not necessarily, I think if they sat down and they looked at their favorite pieces of media, they would notice that there's actually a lot more politics and stuff of the time or reflecting the world than they may be willing to accept or notice. I think in the last few years in particular that there's, you know, there's been certainly a rise in well, political games or more games that have, you know, real-world settings. And one example is, I don't know if you've heard of it, but St. Christopher's School's Lockdown by Lady yes. Murray. Yeah, I, 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 I played just this year. But mm-hmm. now what she, I mean, you can, you can tell, like, what, you know, her politics in front of the game, but there's no real, I didn't get that there was any agenda as such, or you're being forced anything, you know, down your throat or anything. Right. But um, because she was able to include, like, kind of two sides, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the game, like to, you know, she had different characters. Okay, she had characters like, you know, with one set of beliefs and opinions, but then right. she was also like, she had with the different characters, they all had like different backgrounds, mm-hmm. 
and mm-hmm. so then they all had different beliefs, and that would be surprising. So, right. Um, so it was. I I didn't feel like oh you know we're told you know that we have to uh, believe this, but even there was uh, there was a game you know re- released by Greg Buchanan mm-hmm. uh, called American Election. <laughs> oh wow. But That's very specific. I, very specific, but and it gets more specific. But the interesting thing about this game is that you play as a um, you know as a gay woman, but mm-hmm. then she is um, not, shall we say, working as a PR for the Democrats, at which you might believe she'd be working for right. Republicans. And right. so then that explores that side, you know, and that character, her character decisions. So right. Uh, but yeah, and I believe that Jess Haskins, you know, she had to talk at. But Adventure X and Nariscope in Boston, mm-hmm. where she said politics are in all our games as well, and yeah, know, even I, in conversations as well. So yeah, and I firmly believe that. I mean, it's just you just have to look and see, and they're there. <laughs> exactly. And um, well, now moving on to the games. Look, so uh, you've made all your games using uh, AGS, correct? The, the engine which we spoke about. That in- is, yeah which we spoke about in the first episode. And yep. I want to get your opinion. I know we spoke about this before ourselves. Um, so my question would be 2D or not 2D? Because <laughs> <laughs> that is the question. That is a question. <laughs> because there's still this discussion about uh, games, you know, in 2D or 3D, that I think probably a little bit less now because there have been more games that have been released in 3D that do look well, that do mm-hmm. look good. But there are still people who are maybe a little bit resistant to 3D. But also, likewise, uh, there might be some other people, not hardcore adventure game players like ourselves, but others maybe who might look at 2D games and say, no, I only want to play like AAA-looking 3D games. So mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to know your opinion in general. Um, do you, you know, like, Would you consider making games in 3D in the future, do you think? Would you like to try it out? Or, you know, what do you think are the benefits or, of using both 2D and 3D in adventure games that we can say in this example? Ooh, um, I know. So, no, <laughs> so just put, no. Put, putting it out there, it's, uh, <laughs> it's putting you on the spot there. <laughs> I, I will answer this question from a personal point of view. Sure. Uh, personally, I have no interest in working in 3D at the current time. Um, I can't particularly see that changing anytime soon, but that's just because I've been working in 2D and I still feel like I'm learning a lot of things in 2D. You know, I've I've been trying to do something a little different with each game I've done. You know, lately that's been pushing up the resolution. Um, I mean, I doubled the resolution for from what I was used to working in in Lamplight City, and I've done that again now with the uh, with Rosewater. Um, and I mean, I'm a solo developer and I do all of my own art and I'm not saying that 2D is uh, easier than 3D, but I feel that it's within my current skill set and my current abilities to do a 2D game in higher resolution as opposed to doing a 3D game. I mean, I could I could teach myself basic 3D and I could go on the Unity store and use all pre-bought assets and, you know, make a game doing that by myself and release it, but it's not going to look good. You know, 3D, 3D, to get 3D looking good, 
acceptable, what most people who expect, what the standards they expect from a 3D game now, unless you're, you know, doing something stylistic or, or like, if you're specifically going low poly, like, uh, I think it's pathologic. Um, was it, path- is it pathologic? There's some narrative game that has like a low poly PS1 style. It could be, yeah, it could be that game, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're if you're going stylistic like that, or or just like that low poly look where you don't have to rely on on you know the best shaders and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, maybe you can do that as a solo dev. But if you want to get the 3D game looking good, you're gonna need a bigger team, and I'm. I don't have a bigger team. I'm certainly not going to be able to do it all myself. You know, um, I mean, I know people who worked at, I mean, I, I'm not going to name names or projects or anything, but I know of a specific project that was being worked on in a studio with several team members, you know, a team of about 15 people, several artists and animators and programmers and things. And the game was 3D. It was a it was a point and click adventure game, and it just caused them no amount of frustration, and they couldn't get it looking. I mean, it just well that the project was plagued with a lot of other things. But long story short, it was a 3D game. The studio ended up shutting down. The game got outsourced to uh, other um, artists and programmers and stuff. And when it was finally released. It was released as a 2D game. <laughs> so after all that effort, that effort, yeah. And I'm gonna be completely honest with you. It looks much better as a 2D game. Sure, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, as I said, personally, I have no desire to go 3D. I don't think I would be able to get the results I would want if I went 3D. I don't have any particular ideas right now, or I haven't designed anything. Uh, that I've thought, gee, if only I, ha- I could do this in 2D, I could totally do it in 3D. I haven't run into that yet, so I haven't quite gotten the desire to, uh, you know. I mean, there's certain things where I'm like, oh, gee, I wonder how I can do this. I would probably be able to do it in 3D. But I've never thought, oh, well, I should really do it. I've, I've been able to find 2D tricks <laughs> to yeah. uh, for that sort of thing. Um Including rotoscoping, but uh, that's just my thing. Um, so yeah, that's that. I guess that's my answer. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. You know, it depends on each person, should I say, what they're used to. Because you've worked all your life on you know two D, and it's, you know what you're good at, what you've been able to do, and because your games look very well now as well. And you said that you're still learning, you know, with the higher resolutions now. Like with Rosewater now, and it feels like a complete, nearly a completely different skill set to then go and work on 3D. And probably like you might get, oh, uh, absolutely, you probably get better results sticking with 2D in your case. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know what's funny is that um, you you asked at the beginning, you know, if I was still using AGS, and it's funny because I think because so many people that use AGS have opted to go with 320 by 200 resolution pixel art, or in some cases they've you know gotten more ambitious and they've done 640 by 400 or 640 by 360 or whatever, but still low resolution pixel art. But once you get higher than that, like if you go 1024 or what I'm doing with Rosewater, then people are like, oh, is that still AGS? Because exactly. 
it doesn't look like it. Right, but that's because so many people have made that as a stylistic choice that it's it's created this idea, I guess, that AGS can only do those those uh, that resolution or those resolutions. So as soon as you get higher, it's like, oh, I didn't know AGS could do that, which I, I find amusing. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point because we have our, this idea, you know, what an AGS game looks like. Right. But now, particularly now with, uh, well, I think your last two games in particular with Lamplight City and now in particular with Rosewater from what I've seen, uh, you know, I'm like, wow, that looks, you know, high resolution. Is that really an AGS game? Yep. It so, can do it. It can do it. Yeah. It's just people do it. People don't. <laughs> exactly. So now it sounds like you're still pushing yourself, but, you know, to your limits, you know, like with um, how you can, you know, make the game look without, shall we say, learning again how to use 3D. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... So, it I makes sense. Always, yeah, I, I, there's always things that I wish I could do better, and I try and improve. But at the same time, I, you know, if, if, I, had, if I had all the time in the world to learn a new skill, that'd be great. But the reality is, you know, I make my, I'm lucky enough to be able to do this for a living. And in order to do that, I have to put games out. So, right. so <laughs> I have to, I have to sort of balance between, you know, improving my skills and learning new things and, you know, trying to just make the game look as good as I can within my particular skill set at that particular time of development. You know, cause I always, I always look back on old games and I think, oh, wow, I, I wish I could have done that better. Even Lamplight City, like, you know, it was the first game where I felt like, oh, okay, well, this looks okay. Um, and now looking back at, at it, because I had to replay bits for the, you know, for the commentary stuff, I was like, oh, wow, this looks so weird because I'm so used to working in the higher resolution with Rosewater. Like, right. going back and seeing... <laughs> The, the low resolution of Lamplight City, I'm just like, oh my god, this is so so blocky and so pixely, like <laughs> so weird. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird. It's all relative. <laughs> right, well, I look forward to seeing Rosewater. Then we can see the difference. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And then I'm sure whatever game I make next, well, I the next game I'll be like, oh wow, Rosewater, look at that. That's quaint. <laughs> Keep, keep uh, you know, improving all the time. That's, <laughs> That's it's not even improving, but as more tools are available, even within AGS. Yeah. That, um, that yeah, the technology improves, shall we say. Yeah. Always keep pushing yourself, I say. Definitely, yeah. I mean, uh, last thing you want to do is just keep making the same stuff over and over again. Yeah, which you certainly have not been doing because I think well, within... I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> no, definitely because in each of your games they've had different settings or they felt different. Okay, I know that Rosewater is still like in the same overall setting, but it's still from what I've seen looks yeah. different to Lamplight City. Now again, if you made like more detective games, that would not be a problem. I'd be all for it. But you know, you've made um, a Golden Wake. Uh, yeah. You know which. Uh, then Shardlight, and then Lamplight City, and now Rosewater, and all have different settings, different characters, different stories. So, you know, just we, we can't really, I don't think, pinpoint, oh, so this is a Francisco Gonzalez game. Then what is a Francisco <laughs> Gonzalez game? It's, but um, That's funny because I've had people tell me, yeah, this is absolutely, like they look at Rosewater and they're like, yeah, this is totally a Grunislav game. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad oh. that you can tell. I don't know what it defines. <laughs> yeah. One, but okay. 
I don't know, suppose in a general sense, you could say, with, I don't know, the uh-huh. character. I, I don't know, but from what I I've planned to playing, even the Ben Jordan games are feel kind of different, so. Mm. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and then, uh, with the voice acting then, because all of your games have had really good voice acting, um, oh. do you, do you then work in a studio with the voice actors, or do they send, uh, the clips to you? I don't know if we've covered this before in episode one, but, just, just in case. Um, but yeah, no, no, generally I like to, um, well, I say generally, um, but up until this point, I've worked exclusively with local uh, actors in New York in just recording in the studio. Um, I've actually, for Rosewater, this is the first time I am going to use remote actors, but for bit parts. Um, okay. Nothing, nothing too major because I want to keep the sound quality as consistent as possible. I mean, it's super hard to keep sound quality consistent when you have other people, even if it's like a professional home studio setup, you know, there, there might be something that affects the, just the sound quality might sound different. It's, it's hard enough. I mean, even if you use the same actors, I mean, even if you use the same location and you have all your actors record in the same studio, you know, if one actor stands a foot, or even an inch closer to the microphone than another, you could get a completely different sound. And there's just so many variables right. that, you know. And I mean, yeah, okay, these games aren't AAA, super high budget, high fidelity stuff. Most people probably won't notice differences like that. But I think consistency is important. Mm-hmm. And, I, and me on a personal level, I like to have the audio quality as consistent as possible. So... Yeah. So obviously, then it's best, if possible, to be in the studio. <laughs> it's. Uh... I think so. That's, yeah. But you know, your mileage may vary for any <laughs> any developers out there listening. Yeah, because I think uh, it's it's true then that if it's in a studio, you can control more the the audio, like you have more options to control the audio. I can't I can't answer that in detail because I'm not an engineer. I've had other people do handle the recording equipment. I've just done the directing. Okay. Um, but to my understanding, if you have a good engineer who is listening for things, then yeah, it's possible to be able to say, "Oh, well, you know, that they, they do that there was uh there was um breath noise or that not a breath noise a, a pop or a right or like yeah you when you when you exhaled we could he, like the the waveform is high so obviously there was like the microphone picked up the the wind noise or whatever um or even in cases where like we had the issue with lamplight city that the place we recorded was a, a storage unit that had been converted into sound studios and there was one night we had uh a band playing really loud in the studio next door and the, the sound bled through no. and it got picked up. And if I had been handling it all myself, I would have cried because I would have lost like four hours worth of footage. But luckily my engineers were, you know, able to, to set the microphone and the, and the settings so that they were able to keep out as much of the noise during recording. And then in the editing process and the, the, the processing thing, they were able to work literal magic and like completely scrub any noise <laughs> from the from the audio files and you can't hear it at all now and it was like super super loud and you hear the raw footage before the editing and it's just like 
so how can you tell me about it? And it's like, oh my God, how did they do that? So, yeah. So, I mean, you could also like add a band, you know, in that scene or maybe. Just... Yeah. Oh, what's that noise? It's a bear. It's a band next door. Oh, gee. Oh, oh look, it's a grizzly bear. It's yeah. disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm happy to, to hear that that was sorted out. So, yeah. Uh, so you, you, you work directly with the actors then? Uh, in yeah. the studio then and yeah. um, well I did on I did for Golden Wake and on Lamplight City and a little bit on Shardlight but um, but mostly Lamplight City and a Golden Wake and well with Rosewater I will as well right and so and how, how do you like to work with them? do you prefer to maybe you know when you give direction do you prefer to tell the actors you know a little bit about their characters their backstory or do you let them come up with their own backstory or do, like let them figure it out mostly as well or half and half or I'm curious because I've never you know directed voice acting myself so yeah um, your process yeah so I mean I, I generally don't try to give the actors the entire thing um, I mean I basically keep it down to the most important details like what I mentioned before is the example, like, you know, if we have a character who's grouchy and doesn't let anybody in and she's very guarded and stuff, I might tell the actor why that is, you know, she had a bad experience when she was a child or something, you know, right. maybe not even super detailed, but just so that the actor can get on an emotional level. Um, I mentioned about, you know, working remotely. I had the the trailer for the teaser trailer for Rosewater is narrated by a character who appears in the game, but has a very a relatively small role. But I wanted to use a particular voice actor, and so I, you know, I skyped in and I directed her. And I was like, okay, look, this character is basically. I told her, you know, this is how old she is. This is what she's what she does like, and this is how she's like the narration she's giving is she's telling somebody this thing. And I said, imagine that you're, you know, you're talking to somebody who is very full of themselves and you're trying to get them to do something you want by sort of buttering them up as you're saying that. Mm. And that was it, you know, and then, you know, I, I trusted her to handle it. And then, you know, when I went back, I was, and you know, once she read through, I was like, okay, well, let's go back and do this one again, but do this one a little bit more like, like there was, I don't want to get too into detail, but the line was, I just want you to do me a small favor. So I said, let's do that one again, but read the line. I, you just need to do me one small favor. Like, you know, you're saying, eh, it's just a small favor, but really <laughs> it's like you're asking this person for their firstborn child. And, you know, <laughs> I, actually, I think the direction I gave was say it like you're the devil. Like you <laughs> You, you, it's just a small favor, but you're actually like asking this person for their firstborn. And as soon as once I said that, it was like, okay, yeah, that's perfect. You just have to, you just, because I know a lot of directors will be like, and I mean, the biggest sin that you can commit is doing a line read, which is just reading the line to the actor as you want it performed. So they're basically just mimicking your version of it. And that's like voice director no no number one. <laughs> um, so I mean, basically, it's just about just trusting your actors and just saying, okay, well, you know, this is this is where you're at. Imagine that you're that this is who you're talking to. Whatever, this is how you're feeling. 
and then just roll with it from there. Right, because you've done voice acting work in the past as well on other games. I've done a little bit, but more as a... I mean, I would—I don't consider myself a, an, a voice actor. I mean, I, I, I'm not an actor <laughs> at all. Like, I can do funny voices and stuff like that, but I'm, you know... If somebody told me, you know, vis- imagine yourself doing this, I'd probably have a harder time with it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but I remember that uh, that was a detective that appeared, was it, in the Blackwell series? Oh, Durkin. Yeah, but Durkin, <laughs> Durkin's a very, you know, hard-boiled detective. There's not a lot to him. Like, you know what you're getting with Durkin. So it's pretty easy to just be like, you know, hey, I'm Durkin, whatever. <laughs> I've never, you know, it's there's never been a situation where it's like, oh, well, let's see Durkin sad or let's let's hear Durkin, <laughs> like, you know, conflicted or something like <laughs> You know, it's usually pretty what you see is what you get with him. So I've never really had to do a role that has required me to to be super emotional. So that's why or or go anywhere deep. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I would handle that situation. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, because then the, the first time you did voice acting, was it in Ben Jordan 2? Or was it Ben Jordan 1 that you added voice acting to one of your Ben Jordan games? No, actually, the first time I ever did voice acting was one of the reality on the norm games I did. Oh, Hooky, Peg, oh. yeah, Hooky Pegleg Pirate Postman, <laughs> where I played the title character, and for some reason I decided to give him a Scottish accent. Oh, that, now I have to play that game. <laughs> I don't think it's available anymore. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, I think it was... I mean, it might be. I know I made it on like a really old version of AGS, which probably doesn't run anymore. And who knows where the voice pack is and if it was even, I don't know. But yeah, I remember like he had, there was a moment where he was, he was able to read. He learns how to read and he's like, I can read. So you can only imagine how bad that was. Oh, yeah. Well, from what I can hear, that's, uh, you know, great, you know, Scottish accent. Better than my attempt anyway. I mean, my last, my last name is Scottish, but I've yeah, been told uh, I can't do a Scottish accent. I mean, I can't even do my own Irish accent. So. Well, you don't want to hear me do an Irish accent because <laughs> well, you won't be, you won't want to talk to me anymore. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's still better than you know Tom Cruise, who says he's from Ill Ireland in oh. uh, that movie Powered Away, and I like Tom Cruise as an actor, oh. but but um, but oh. yeah, but oh, I'm kind of curious now. <laughs> Well, I'll do it after we finish recording. <laughs> okay, I have to find a way to secretly record it. Then. <laughs> oh. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, well, moving on. Uh, we've spoken a little bit of the puzzles, you know, the story then as well. Hmm. Um, now, we, we spoke, you know, about, uh, you know, puzzles when you were in Ireland. That's some um, <laughs> examples that didn't work very well. I'm very happy to say that in, well, all your games and Dave's games as well, that there's never any time where I thought this puzzle just does not make any sense because we've come across <laughs> some of those. Like there's some truly, truly horrible puzzles in other games and otherwise mm. good games. Mm. Um, so I wanted to ask you then as a developer, what what type of puzzles would, in your opinion, be uh, good puzzles or well-designed puzzles? And how difficult are they to design and to incorporate them into the story? Uh, well, good puzzles, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, it's the second part that I'm sighing at. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, in my personal opinion, I'm not a fan of what the more, I guess, hardcore traditionalist adventure game players 
I mean, everybody complains about moon logic puzzles. I don't like moon logic puzzles. I don't think that puzzles where you have to, like, think completely outside of the box and read the designer's mind are good puzzles. I, I definitely think that adventure game design has had to adapt with the idea that people have shorter attention spans, people have the internet. Um, you know, puzzles in adventure games should be obstacles that are satisfying to solve once you solve them. They should present enough of a challenge where you might have to stop and think for a little bit, but not where you have to be stuck for hours. And then when you finally get it, you think, oh my God, how was I ever supposed to figure that out? You know, you should right. in retrospect be like, oh, okay. My puzzle design has always veered towards the more logical as far as like, you know, my example that I always use is if you have a crowbar, you should use that crowbar to pry something open, not to use it with uh, some other random combination of items to make a completely different tool. You know, if you need a, a fruit or something, you know, and you're in a city, why can't you just go into a supermarket and buy that fruit? Like, why, you know, you can design as many arbitrary excuses as you want for not having the fruit. Like, oh, the market just happens to be sold out of the only market in this giant metropolis <laughs> is some for some reason sold out of of oranges. Okay, well, uh, I guess I can go down to the park where oranges just happen to grow on trees and distract the police officer who's guarding the orange. Like, no, no, that doesn't make sense. It's stupid. You know, come up with something better. My lately, my design has shifted more towards the idea that puzzles. I don't even call them puzzles. I call them obstacles because that's what they are. You know, they're, they're obstacles that are preventing you from continuing the story or from moving on from the particular area you're in. And my design for puzzles is, or the, the, the ideal goal that I'm trying to strive for when designing puzzles is, they should tell you something about either your character, the character that you're dealing with, if you're dealing with one, or the world. Like, if you have, let's take the classic idea of the distraction puzzle, right? There's somebody guarding a door that you have to, that you want to get inside, but this person is not letting you inside. Cool. Okay, well, what's an interesting reason why that's happening? Okay, come up with an interesting reason. Uh, why is the character guarding the door? Why can't you just say, let me in? You know, what? what everyone has a price, right? If it's somebody you can bribe with something, why is it that you can bribe them with this one thing, but not with the other thing? What incentive does this person have to abandon their post? You know, that could be that could make for an interesting analysis of their character. You know, just because if you just have a character who's just standing there and all you need to do is get them a particular item they ask for, no questions asked, you don't need a character. You just need a, a machine or a sign or something or a basket like no or a turnstile, no entry without coin or whatever. You know, that it's, it presents an opportunity there to to add some depth to your story. So that's that's what I think about when making uh, puzzles. And yeah, I mean, like I said, I veer more towards the logical, which a lot of people think, oh, well, that's too easy. But I would rather have a game that has puzzles that are too easy than have puzzles that just make you angry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because... You're playing an adventure game to have fun, to experience the world, to experience the story, to experience the characters. And yeah, okay, to have a, a challenge. But if it's like, you know, 
there's a lot of people who play AAA shooter games, and there's games that have story mode or very easy mode, where they take out the combat, the hard part. Yeah, okay, some people are some people really want to play the the hardest combat setting, and that's fine. Okay, maybe you could do like Monkey Island did and have extra hard puzzles, but I don't think adventure game puzzles scale well uh, with difficulty like mm. a, another mechanic like combat or something because you can make an enemy tougher and okay yeah fine you have to improve your combat mechanics but there's no real way to effectively and satisfyingly improve your lateral thinking skills on the fly to be able to say okay well i can think let's put this on super difficulty so i it can only solve these puzzles if I know exactly how the designer is thinking. No, that's that's not how it works. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a sp- speaking of uh, fruit that you mentioned. Don't mm. you remember when we spoke? I gave the example of the lemon that you needed a lemon, and um, in it is game. I don't want to name the name of the game, right. but remember now. As you mentioned, if you need a lemon, why not just go to a store and get a lemon? Now in this exactly. case. Fair enough, it was nighttime, and it, in the game it was actually in the west of Ireland, I believe, which is not a metropolis by any means. Okay. But, but the solution uh, was, it was, I would say, one of the worst puzzles I've ever come across. <laughs> That's when you, you know, you're on the side of a mountain and there's a stop sign, but you need a towel to cover the stop sign, you go into the pub, and then a lemon truck just happens right. to be going at yes. that time. It right. crashes off the mountain. The driver probably dies, right. but you don't care about that because one right. lemon falls out of that truck, and then you pick up the lemon, and hey, presto, you have a lemon. I mean, anything else would have been better. As you say, like distracting a guard of a lemon tree would have been better, even though I don't think we have lemon trees in Ireland. <laughs> but, but I was like, why couldn't you just go to a store, or why what couldn't do you, you, again, what do you, if you need the lemon for in the game, in the context uh, of the game? Oh, I forget. You know, there's some... <laughs> <laughs> it, the, the thing is, in that in that game, you know, overall it wasn't a terrible game. You know, it was actually you know fun overall. Right, right. But they they tried to be like a serious game, but then with comedic elements, and it didn't really work. And with these wacky puzzles, I mean, it, if you it design puzzles work. that make your main character into a sociopath, right there, it's, that's just causing yeah. you as the player to spend disbelief or whatever. Because exactly, and also to how be can you mind take someone reader. serious? Yeah, how can you take anyone seriously who would gladly cause a truck to go careening off a cliff <laughs> to eat a lemon? That's just—they should be committed. They should be arrested first of all, and they should undergo psychological evaluation. Because wow, that's bad. Well, he needed that lemon to save the world, apparently. Right. So, yeah. but even if they had, like, you know, like a lemon in a house. And he, yeah. he had to like steal the lemon and distract the owner of the house or something. It, yeah. anything would, but there's, I mean, there are many examples, you know, there's that. Oh, yeah. I, there's the example from another game that I won't name where you need a bottle of wine. Uh huh. Yes. I know this game. <laughs> and you, not only do you, I mean, the, the whole having to fly between two cities to get it is ridiculous in and of itself, <laughs> but you actually do buy the wine, but you don't buy it at a liquor store. You buy it at a bar. <laughs> like what bar I mean I guess bars sell wine but but bars sell wine for you to drink there by the bottle <laughs> I guess I should rephrase that and say what bar sells wine by the bottle right. but yeah like, a bar or a club will sell you wine or champagne by the bottle for you to have there on the premises not to take with you because you need a separate license to sell 
you know, liquor that you take, that you consume on premises versus liquor that you purchase and take outside. So it's like, what, what <laughs> there's, first of all, you're telling me that there's no liquor stores in either of these two major <laughs> U.S. cities. And second of all, you're telling me that when you have to go to this one place, the only place you can get it happens to be a place you can't even actually realistically buy a bottle. <laughs> right. So yeah. anyway, but that, yeah, so, but uh, yeah, so there are many examples of moon logic and then no logic puzzles. So unfortunately, but, and unfortunately, a lot of players have come to accept this is just the mm -hmm. standard that anything that doesn't meet these standards is somehow not a true adventure game, which is unfortunate, and I hardly, heavily, heavily. Right. <laughs> but I, I, th I think overall, at least in the last year or so, I think adventure games have gotten better in this case. That I remember in this game, uh, Guard Duty. Now, I will mention this because I like this puzzle. Yes. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to criticize this, this puzzle now, but I think it was one of the best puzzles of the year, actually. I'm not going to give it away, mm -hmm. but basically, you have to go past a spider. And then it's very clever how you have to get rid of the spider. That you have to think, but it makes sense and it's logical. Okay. Well, yeah, um, that's good. So, so yeah, so definitely. So those kind of puzzles are, uh, you know, I, I agree entirely. I prefer even logical puzzles that make sense where even if I don't get them, you know, first time, then if I go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't uh, get that. Rather than, I would never have gotten that. But, right. uh, but anyway, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but... Then with some um, digital uh, distribution as another thing I wanted to ask, because mm. this is where people now would say mainly get their games, say on Steam or GOG or the Epic Store now, mainly Steam, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is your, uh, I mean, overall, then, it, you, know, <laughs> you know, you don't have to go into you know, specific detail about getting the game on Steam and all of this maybe. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. overall, do you think this is good now that there are, more games now if it's easier to buy the games now because you can get more games i think from around the world now people from all around the world can just get the games very quickly just you know pay mm -hmm. online and download the games immediately or you know do you think that maybe there are some consequences to this that we haven't thought about or just your opinion as a developer who's put games on steam just overall your thoughts well as a developer i definitely think that the ease of you know if you make it easier for people to be able to access and purchase your game, that's great. Um, I don't know necessarily that it's a good thing that it's so easy to get your game on Steam because, you know, you now that you have the whole just pay $100 and get your game on there, that's kind of what is directly leading to... Uh, well, it's not directly, or rather, it's not the only factor... But it's one of the reasons that the market is so saturated. So, I mean, for ease of access, I think it's great. For saturation, I think it's gotten a bit uh, much. And the problem is that, you know, more curated storefronts like GOG or the Epic Store, you know, Steam has kind of just become the standard. And Steam doesn't really care about curation. Um so you have most people buying from Steam, and again, you have, you know, anybody can pay $100 and get their game on there. So it's it's hard, because you have the hardcore minority who love, you know, the DRM-free stuff of GOG, or the exclusivity of Epic, or whatever, 
but they're not going to make up the majority of your sales, you know? So, mm. yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky situation. Yeah, it's both good and bad that, you know, mm. it's easier for people around the world to, you know, find games, but then it has become saturated because, I mean, yeah. theoretically, I could make a game in a week and call it uh, Lamp Dark Town, put it up, <laughs> <laughs> same time you release your game, you know, buy my game instead. It's, I mean, it would suck. <laughs> but, you know, that it could have, you know, but minor effects on, yeah. say, your game, because you're someone who's been working for years on making a game, and then other people who don't put in half as much effort, they can also uh, put their games up on Steam then as well. Yeah, I mean, um, thankfully, thankfully, personally, I have not yet experienced the <laughs> phenomenon of cloning. I mean, I do know, I, I know some some developers locally who, they don't make adventure games. They make more, you know, easy-to-clone style, mechanically, uh, games. Um, and they've had a problem with that. But right. yeah, if somebody went through the effort of just putting slapping something together and putting it on Steam and calling it Lamp Dark Town, <laughs> I have to give them the benefit of the fact that or the benefit of the doubt and be like, look, at least you thought that you might make some money off of stupid people. <laughs> so I admire your <laughs> I admire your uh, your entrepreneurial ship. That's even what it is. <laughs> yeah, I like this game, Lamplight City. I'm just going to try and just copy that. And <laughs> if they think that if they think that there's enough of a market in adventure games that people are going to buy clone adventure games, then oof, they got another thing coming. <laughs> or I, I I don't know, Call of Duty, Call of Value, Call of <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, and then I've I mean I I you know I don't know too much, but I've also heard other developers say it about. That some other developers kind of cheat the system in Steam with by adding tags, I think, as well, and keeping their games. Uh, you mentioned being promoted kind of all the time at the expense of other games. So I think that's a whole really? other topic we could go into. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I mean, I but, mean, Steam tags are great. They're very important. They're sure. definitely. But I mean, I guess I can see why it, that they could be abused. Like you could tag your game as something really popular that it's not. Um, but I also really haven't had much experience in that field, so I can't really comment. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think other developers had mentioned, mm -hmm. I don't know the exact uh, issue or situation, but I do know that uh, some have said, no, these people are just putting these tags on a game to make it sound more popular, when it right. really isn't that type of game. And it's going right. to be expensive. But anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, then I wanted to ask you about translation in games because this is something Whoa. now. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this could be a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. So this because you know, speaking of the games being now available on Steam, more readily available around the world, people can mm -hmm. now buy games around the world. They don't need to, shall we say, pirate games because before in many countries around the world, you'd have to pirate games to be able to play the games in particular. Right. Um, you know, but nowadays, usually most countries, I imagine it's easier to download the games and buy them. So right. sure, a lot of people would like to play games, especially narrative games in their own languages. Mm -hmm. uh, some developers have, uh, you know, gone to the effort of translating games. And I spoke to a translator, Alexander Premak, ah, who yes. does games in Russian. And, uh, you know, he spoke about translating again. That will come up early 2020, that interview. Mm -hmm. nice. Um so, and he gave some really good, uh, you know, some good thoughts and good, good comments about 
translating as well. And so I just wanted to know your opinion as an adventure game developer. You know, what what were your thoughts overall about now translating games? Would you uh, have you thought about translating some of your games into other languages for people around the world or? Uh, are you just because even yourself, I believe you speak Spanish. Um, mm-hmm. you know, have you thought about translating? I know there's a lot of dialogue in mm-hmm. some of your games, particularly Lamplight City. But yep. what, what are your thoughts overall on this? Would you have you is this something you thought about doing in future? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have done it. Um, oh, you have but, done it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'd, I'm actually glad that you mentioned it because I'm very interested to hear what Alexander has to say on the subject because. I so I feel really bad because I would love to be able to translate my games into as many languages as possible. Um, you know, I'm all about accessibility. I if someone can't play my game because they don't feel comfortable enough in English or to understand, like that just that hurts me. Like I not because oh my god they're not going to be able to play my game, but because I feel bad. I would love to be able to provide that, but unfortunately you know, again, as a solo developer, just the time and the cost, it, it just, and this sounds really horrible, but just from a business perspective is not worth it. Um, mm. Lamplight City was localized into German because Application Systems, my publisher, is German, and they have an in-house team that they, that they dedicated to uh, localizing the game. And yeah, Lamplight City has 8,000-something lines of dialogue, which those had to be localized. But then in addition to that, there's also a bunch of books and newspapers right. and, and, you know, graphics, excuse me, graphics with baked-in text that also needed to be localized. Um, and so it was a big job, and it took a long time. And, you know, it... It's not something that you can just say, oh, yeah, feed it into Google Translate because, you know, I know of, I know, <laughs> and, you know yes, I, we both know about a, a game that, that had issues with that. Um, I'm sure it's not know, the only one. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. And, you know, I've looked at the numbers and, you know, supposedly Germany is the country with like the highest uh, fanship of adventure games. And, you know, adventure games are supposedly really popular in, in Germany. And just looking at the numbers, it's something like less than 10% of sales are the exclusively German version. So if that's Germany, imagine other languages. And yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I speak Spanish. Yeah, I used to be an interpreter. I have some translation uh, experience. But the time that it would require for me to translate my games I could be dedicating and I am dedicating to making other games you know if Rosewater is a hit knock on wood and it does it you know it keeps me uh well off for a little while you know I, I would consider going back and and if you know if I had if I had a few months where I could take it easy and I could just you know not worry about having to make another game or anything sure I'd go back and I would translate my games into Spanish but yeah the feasibility of it currently is is not it's just not there unfortunately and again i wish i could do it but the situation is just not right for it right now 
Right, yeah, big sense because as you mentioned, you're a solo developer, not a triple A developer with millions of dollars. Yeah, even to, even to with a publisher's with. backing, mm-hmm. again, you know, if a publisher has to spend, you know, X amount of money to, uh, you know, to, to cover the costs of the of the translator, you know, how long, how many sales is that going to equivalent? Uh, it, how many sales is that going to be equivalent to before recouping that? And how long is it going to take? Because, you know, if, if the game comes, if the translation comes out, let's say you've paid the, let's say you paid the translator, I don't know, $5,000 for their, that's probably a super low number, but, but <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> let's say you pay the translator $5,000 for their services. The games, that would mean that you'd have to sell I left my phone upstairs. I don't have access to a calculator, but <laughs> I'm not good at math. But you'd have to sell the game, imagine, at full price, plus minus the cut that Steam or whatever service uh, takes, minus the the you know the split between the publisher and the developer, um, you know, times however many copies to recoup that five thousand dollars. That's that's not a small amount. That's you know that's at least a few about maybe about a thousand copies um and if it's selling you know maybe 10 15 a month that's going to take a while to to recoup so yeah that's the reality of it i unfortunately no that that makes you know a lot, lot of sense because you know as well as that as well as the cost of it if the translation isn't good um it, you could get you know negative ratings you know on steam and gog or wherever which and theoretically wouldn't be your, your fault because you didn't do the translation itself. So uh, it's, it's a risk anyway. So. Yeah. I mean, that's but. also, you know, a good reason to look into and, you know, hire a professional who has, you could do a background check and check their CV or whatever and see what experience they have. Um, right. Ideally. No, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. No, well, the, it's too good to be true. Probably is. As yeah. they say. Well, my interview with Alexander Premack will be coming up, I believe, January 2020. Now, he has worked on the translation for, you know, Broken Sword 5 and Beyond the Steel Sky and other games as well of High Caliber. So, and he has some very interesting thoughts as well. So, hmm. um, so it could be something to watch out for. And, um, then with regards to game length, which is, <laughs> I'm sure there's some games that are shorter than this interview. <laughs> <laughs> So I won't keep you too much longer, uh, Francisco. I know that you need to go back to working on the game. But hey, speaking I've been of length, working on the game the whole time we've been talking, so no, no well, skin off. Oh, I, 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 ho- <laughs> I, I hope that I've helped to inspire you now with these questions. You have, <laughs> or, yes. or at least you know, hope that I haven't taken up too much of your time. But um, but regarding game length now, because you know, this was supposed game length and pricing of games because. As you say, you, you know, this is your career. This is your job now that you have, you know, a lot of bills to pay, you have a business to run. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, it's the tricky case of pricing a game and then versus the game length. And I've always found it funny that, you know, a game that is two or three hours long, people will say, Oh, this is too short. Just, you know, why is it like 20, 15, $20? And then we're happy to pay that amount or some cases double that amount to go to the cinema or the theater to watch a movie for two hours. Yep. And, um, you know, because I have had, you know, other developers, you know, talk about this, that 
You know, they have games that even some games that are two, three hours under six dollars, and then I get a thumbs down on Steam, say, oh, for the price that it costs, you know, it's not worth it. And I'm like, wait, six dollars for a two, three hour game? It's like it's. I don't think that's excessive at all, you know. Mm. But I'm just curious in your opinion then on is do you think that certain games should be a certain length, or do you think that that reflects? what price they should be or should the price reflect maybe the quality of the game or the time it took to make the game again from the point of view of venture game developer as yourself well i i already think most games are underpriced anyway mm-hmm. because if you if you stop and consider the amount of time that uh, it takes to make these games and how many hours a developer is working and what they have to pay their team for how much they have to do themselves if they're a solo developer, you know, it, if you quantified that, it would probably come out to a lot more than what the games are, are being priced for. I mean, I personally think that, you know, I, I have a hard time sympathizing. I mean, I understand. I'm, not everybody is, is, you know, not everybody can afford games. Mm-hmm. But if you consider that most people pay $60 for AAA games. Exactly. It you know, asking 14.99 or less for an indie game is I mean, granted, yeah, okay, with a triple game, your AAA game, you're probably going to get several hours of content, sure. Um, you know, but 60 plus maybe in some cases or whatever, if it's an RPG or if it's a or if it's, you know, like an action game or something, yeah, maybe okay, maybe you'll get like 10, 15 hours, whatever. Or if it's an Assassin's Creed game, maybe you'll get five months out of it or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I People who scoff or that are like, oh my god, it's a 10-hour game and I it's $15. Like, that's pretty, that's fine. You know, I, I, I don't care. You know, I, I would, but that's me, of course. And also looking at it from a developer's point of view, you know, you're, you're making these games because... Yeah, you, you you hopefully are passionate about it and you enjoy it, but you also ideally want to make some money off of it. So mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think asking fourteen ninety nine is is a lot. Maybe if you were, maybe if I was making like you know, if I charged like forty dollars for Lamplight City, okay, then I would understand. Yeah, maybe maybe some people would think that was a little bit too much because okay, yeah, it's a low resolution game. Most people generally tend to take like ten, maybe eight. Between eight to twelve hours, okay, fine. Maybe forty is asking a lot, but fourteen ninety nine is. Oh, look, Lamplight City just posted a new announcement. Lamplight City developer commentary update. Hooray! <laughs> As we spoke on this podcast, it happened. Anyway, oh, um, oh, oh, really? Oh, yes. Uh, there's an yes. update now. Oh, wow. There is an update. There you go. Uh, that means I have to run to Twitter after we talk. It. <laughs> anyway. So you can do yeah, it now if you wish. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm I'm not gonna. I, I will finish what I start and finish this podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So, um, what was I saying? Oh yeah. So so fourteen ninety nine I think is a fair a fair price. And I mean I'm not gonna get into the whole specifics of value for money and whatever. But I do definitely think that um, that most indie games are probably well below what they should be charging and i'll tell you here first i'm charging i'm planning on updating up or upping the price 
for Rosewater. Uh, Ooh, controversial. For a few reasons, but um, yeah, it's still not going to be like super crazy, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, because then, you know, other games that say cost $10 and then people say, oh, wait till it goes on sale, maybe for when it's for $8. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, I still don't understand the... Uh, uh, someone told me the other day that they were like, yeah, I can see, I, I see games that are like 80% off and I still think, oh, I can probably get a better deal than that. I'm like, what? What? For if free? People, <laughs> yeah. If people really want to buy your game, then they'll buy your game. It's just convincing the people who are on the fence about it that they should buy your game. Uh, that's the trick. And that's the trick I'm still trying to figure out. And yeah. Right. Well, I think a lot of people are kind of similar but um but yeah no and again a lot not all of them but a lot of these same people will happily spend 60 70 dollars for a triple a game that uh you know could be even triple you know longer game as you mentioned that could be like 50 60 hours it doesn't mean it's better right because a, a lot of that could be you know walking through a wasteland delivering packages for example I have not played that game right what i've heard it's like okay that could be shorter as well or you know yeah but um, but but yeah. Anyway, I love Hideo Kojima. I love all his Metroid Solid games. I'm not going to get in there. But from whatever of this game, it's like, oh, really? You're going to spend seventy dollars on walking? But hey, some people love it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know if you know because you've been you know a few years making games now. So if let's see if I can phrase this question as best as I can. <laughs> if uh, your current self could tell or give advice any advice to your younger self starting off making games what would it be would you give your younger self any particular advice was there anything that you would like to have known then that you know now absolutely i would say learn art okay (laughs) study art um and uh consider wrapping up the ben jordan <laughs> faster <laughs> and start doing commercial games quicker <laughs> right yes yeah, so finish off the free series and then uh start making money out of this work yeah i mean i've ben jordan 7 came out in 2008 and ben jordan 8 didn't come out until 2012 so if I had finished Ben Jordan 8 and, uh, you know, gotten it out by like, let's say 2009, 2010, and I had gone commercial in 2010 or 11, I think things would have been slightly different than it having waited until 2013. So we would have Rosewater by now, for example. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. Well, maybe and maybe not. I don't know. Who knows how these things work? But, yeah. Yeah. Maybe in an alternate universe. Yeah. Maybe, it's, but, but uh, no, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with how things have have shaped up and where things are right now. So, no, definitely because um, I think uh, you know I I tagged you myself on Twitter that you you know this poll of the best adventure game series that is uh, that is out that Ben Jordan came out on top of the group at least in the time of recording. Yeah, I was I was very pleased so, to see that. That was very nice. I mean, I don't know if now, uh, by the time this episode goes out, what would have happened, but you know, there, there'd be some big name series like Space Quest is, is out, Blackwell series is out, 
Um, quite a few other series are, are knocked out, and Ben Jordan is there in the quarterfinals. So mm, it's yeah. uh, you know it's there with the with the big with the big boys. So. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you know, coming out with King's Quest and you know all, all these other games. So you know it's it's mm-hmm. something, right? And then the, the last question then uh, is. And again, very easy question. Um, where do you see the future of the adventure genre <laughs> going? So again, because you're speaking to a lot of game developers and you're going to conferences and you're seeing mm. all these games. Uh, you know, so for example, I know that VR has started to become more and more uh, maybe popular. Do you think that maybe that's the future of the adventure genre? Or do you think maybe... Maybe something else. Uh, just you know, again, your opinion from what you see. Do you have any thoughts? About, uh, uh, yeah, on this. I hate to give such a terrible answer, but I honestly <laughs> don't know because <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I feel like I. I have a bit of a cynical opinion in that any time anyone tries anything innovative with adventure games, people are like, "That's not really an adventure game anymore." So, I mean, I think there's always going to be the tried and true, you know, point mm-hmm. and click, whatever. But I just, I can't really think, maybe someone will discover something and, and be hailed as a genius. And I'll think, wow, that was right there in front of us all along. But I don't know. I just, I can't think of any any major innovations to the basic core mechanic of adventure games that would be like, oh, they'll be so different in the future, you know? So, right. I'm sorry for my non-answer. No, no, I think that, that that's fair. But then with, you know, do, do you think that narrative games then, that, uh, is, do you think the future is bright for narrative games in particular? Oh, not just absolutely. Adventure games? Absolutely. Because, because narrative games have, just the concept of narrative and the elements of adventure games have made their way into so many other genres. That's not mm-hmm. going anywhere anytime soon. And I think that can only innovate because mixing in with other genres with other mechanics you know there's uh there's interesting stuff to be done there there's there's that one guy temi who's working on tobin's tales yes yes which is a first person adventure game where you shoot verbs which is amazing that's that's fantastic that's innovation right there i'd love Uh to see that but yeah we'll see we'll see what happens yeah i can't wait to try it that game yeah and I'd love to have him on this podcast, actually, you know, because when I first saw it on Twitter, I was like, oh, my God, why did how come nobody thought of this? Mm. It's because <laughs> it's so simple. The idea is so simple where you just yeah. throw verbs at objects and at other characters. Mm-hmm. And But there's a lot of things that he's doing that, for example, when a character is talking to you and then if you move away from the character as we're talking, they mm. then say, oh, why are you moving away from me? How rude. <laughs> because the, yeah. the, Temi said, this would happen in real life if someone is standing beside yeah. you while they're talking to you and you move away from them. Yeah. Where, where are you going? So one thing that LA Noir did that I thought was funny was when you were interrogating people, if you did, if you took too long, they'd be like, uh, why aren't you asking me anything? Yeah. <laughs> like I love little things like that where the characters react to. Yes, definitely. And, uh, and then is there any particular game that you play over Christmas? That is your go-to game at Christmas. It doesn't have to be a Christmas game Christmas setting, but is there any game that you like to return to, you know, over Christmas, over the holidays, or hmm. that time, is that when you relax, hmm. maybe, from adventure That's a good games? question, actually. There's no... Uh, I can't think of any games that I play specifically at Christmas time. Um, we can say in the winter. Is there any games in the winter? Yeah, time in the winter. Or, 
Mm, no, I mean, I actually, that's that's the one season that I don't have any real games associated with. Oddly enough, and do I you think, have do you have games for other seasons? Yeah, yeah, I like to play. I I generally like to play uh, Quest for Glory Four in the autumn. Um, okay. Because it's a very autumn game. I sometimes I do a Gabriel Knight playthrough where I play through Gabriel Knight on the dates because it goes from June 18th to the 28th. So I'll play one day of Gabriel Knight on the corresponding day. Yeah, yeah it's a fun way to play that game. Um, but yeah, winter is usually winter. I mean, not so much anymore, but usually, you know, I'll, I'll save a particular game I want for Christmas and then I'll play it like, don't tell because I got the, I mean, this will come out. It won't matter, but I bought this. I, I got disco Elysium as a Christmas present for Jess. So I'm looking forward to playing <laughs> that with her. Uh, once that, once we get that for Christmas. So yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So th- this will be coming out on December 24th. So if you want, you can just keep her away from the podcast. If she listens. That's fine. That's fine. Until... I'll, make sure, I'll make sure she doesn't listen until the day after. <laughs> I can always edit just this part out, but... <laughs> yeah, just beep out the name. Okay. <laughs> Would that help? No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's beforehand, don't worry. Because that, that game, it won. Did that win Game of the Year at the Game Awards? Yeah, that thing, sw- that thing cleaned up. And wow. everyone I know who's played it has had nothing but great things to say about it. And, it, you know, I really liked Planescape Torment, and it seems to be a lot like, you know, very, very inspired by... Planescape Torment with more of a focus on like the dialogue and the narrative rather than the, the combat. So it sounds like it's yes. totally up. So I'm really looking forward to trying it out. Yeah, people have compared it to point and click adventure games just as an RPG, but that their focus is on narrative and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thomas actually got the game, so I'm hoping that he can review it at some point. Cool. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I think a better. Good. Do you have any plans for for Christmas? Is there anything in general that you do? You know, have mulled wine or anything <laughs> at all? Um, right. Not for Christmas. No, mulled wine is usually more of just a winter thing. But no, I'm just going down to to Miami to visit my family and spend some time there. And uh, yeah, be back in New York uh, for New Year's. Finally, I forgot to mention as well that you have, as well as a developer commentary, you have a newsletter. Uh, out now as well correct yes yes i recently started up a newsletter um yeah just a general newsletter talking about you know i I mean i've made a few announcements recently because there's been announcements to make but uh at this point now it's basically just a weekly digest where i write daily what i've done and you know talk about the development of rosewater and just you know Stuff like that. I find that it's a it's a more personal way to engage with fans, and so far people have been pretty receptive to it. So, any listeners out there want to subscribe, you can check it out at uh, tinyletter.com forward slash Grundislav, and you can sign up to the newsletter. And uh, I won't spam your inbox. <laughs> I'll just send you at least one a week, with possibly other ones for other news updates, but. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you want, if you want exclusive information, like the day before <laughs> it happens, uh, like I announced the commentary the day before I announced it officially on Twitter, I'll, you know, probably announce Rosewater-related stuff slightly early if you want to be in the loop. And feel free to subscribe. Cool. Yeah, and then you still have Grundislav.com, is it for? 
Grindasovgames.com. And then and again, if you go if you go to Grindasovgames.com, because I've been having an issue with uh, malware. Uh, if you go there and it tells you and it redirects you to some site saying you've won a prize, don't freak oh. out. Just close your browser window and go back again. And it only works. It only happens like rarely the first time. But yeah, I've been dealing with that for a while now and I can't think of any reasonable way to get rid of it other than going in and manually editing my PHP files every now and then. So sorry about that. But oh, yeah. well. Sure, people will forgive you. That's like, yeah, you won a prize, Rosewater. <laughs> uh, uh, there's other ways to, there's other mm. ways to access my stuff. But yeah, the website's got everything else. Okay, yeah, no, I, I have to say I'm really enjoying your updates on Twitter about the development of Rosewater. Like even small details. When I think you mentioned that you're, you know, open. What is it that you? the characters are now, was it opening doors or something or something that it looks small, but mm. learning new things with, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. developing the game, which is really interesting to see from a developer's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd recommend that people follow you then on Twitter. You also go, you're also on Twitch, is it? Where you, yep. I do uh, development streams uh, cool. every now and then, uh, usually once a week. I did one earlier today. Um, so yeah, generally I do them on Mondays and maybe some other days in the week if I feel inspired. Cool. And you've also been on panels at conferences, and do you have any plans on going to other panels or conferences in 2020, or is it too early still to, to uh, say? It's still too early. There's a few things that are up in the air, but I'm waiting to hear back on confirmation from them. Um by the end of January, I should have a pretty good idea. But you can be sure that if I am aware of those things, I will tweet about them or write about them in the newsletter. So there you go. Yeah, another, exactly. Another reason to follow Francisco on Twitter or uh, on the newsletter. So, uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Francisco. I've been here two hours, and this will be up on Christmas Eve, this Christmas special that will be going up. So the First guest becomes the last guest of the year. Mm, so, mm. Uh, I hope that uh, the podcast, well, the podcast has grown since you've last been on. But um, well, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. And thank you for that. Uh, thank you've certainly well, helped. Thank you for having me on as your first and last guest. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I must say, last guest of the year. There will be well, more. Yeah, yeah. That. Sorry, sorry. Let me clarify that. Yes, last guest of the year. <laughs> uh, although if there is a last guest, well, hopefully, no, hopefully it won't happen anytime soon. But mm. uh, anyway, mm. um, but yeah. So now for as I mentioned, for next week coming after Christmas, uh, I hope to put something up for New Year's Eve. I was hoping to do a Game of the Year, Game of the Decade episode with Lauren Thomas. Now I don't know exactly when that will be up. It might be shortly after the New Year because. We um, we couldn't find a time to get all three of us at the same time to record, and over the Christmas holidays as well, it's uh, nearly impossible. So it might be a little bit later. Um, so for anyone out there, to please be patient. But we are thinking of doing games of the decade and games of the year of this year. Do you have any games of the of the decade that you that you've enjoyed since you're here? I really liked Dishonored. Um... Dishonored was my was my game of the year 2012, and looking back on it, I would say that Dishonored and Dishonored, that just the whole series, Dishonored and okay. Dishonored 2, I, I would say are pretty up there, uh, 
for games of the decade. Oh, you should play them. They were just looking back on how influential they were because Shardlight and Lamplight City had a lot of dishonored influence. They're just great. I mean, they're a lot of fun because they're immersive sims. So, you know, even though it's a first person sort of not shooter, first person magic combat -er, um, you know, there's a lot of little details and stuff that it's just that someone wrote a thread on Twitter about all the cool little details that they included. And just the world building and the characters are really cool. And it's just fun to play around in and, and just do all the cool magic stuff if you want to do that. So yeah, Dishonored and Dishonored 2. Those are those are my games of the, the, the cool. decade. I, <laughs> I know. Well, we've been two hours uh, talking now. So so yeah, that episode will hopefully come out uh, you know pretty soon after the... First uh, of January. I uh, don't know exactly when, but I'll try and upload something. Uh, you know, in the meantime. Um, so I guess that's it. So I wish you, uh, well, Merry Christmas, Happy Hogmanay, and Happy Hanukkah. And uh, even if you don't celebrate Christmas again, that's that's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, happy but, Yule. Exactly. Ha happy Yule. Um, Whatever you celebrate. If you don't celebrate, enjoy your non-celebration. If you do celebrate celebrate it. Exactly. I couldn't <laughs> put it better myself. celebrate responsibly. Exactly. I couldn't have put it any better myself. <laughs> so, uh, well, I hope to see you again sometime in the new year. Maybe this time in New York. Yes, or uh, perhaps in Champaign, Illinois. Yes, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll see now in the new year when I plan the year ahead. So... <laughs> Um, well, thank you very much. And is there anything that you can that you would like to mention that you haven't mentioned? Uh, no, I think that's everything. Okay. Well, thank you thank, for thank having you. me on the podcast. No worries. And again, happy holidays to to you and to everyone listening. If you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate, and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps, and reviews will help get the word out, especially for adventure game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Advent Game Pod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a adventure game developer or adventure game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you